the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Tim Thompson, PAC, Arthroplasty Manager of Impact Ortho, which is a division of Arthrex. Tim is a PA who has a prior clinical background in orthopedics and sports medicine, and more recently as a clinical specialist, product manager, and now an arthroplasty manager with Impact Ortho, which is the Arizona sales and marketing team for Arthrex. Tim has spent a lot of time in the operating room helping surgeons understand shoulder replacements. Tim, big welcome to the Ortho PAC. Sam, thanks for having me on. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Oh, we're happy to have you. Tim, I just kind of glazed over a 20-year history there. Can you give us a little bit more information on what your current role involves and kind of how you got to where you are? Yeah, Sam, I think you hit the nail on the head saying you glazed over because my my career history can be a 20-second talk and saying, I don't know what I want to do with my life, or it can be a little bit more thorough. It's one of those things where getting into PA school and going into orthopedic surgery, you never knew what the possibilities were out there outside of clinical medicine. And I was fortunate enough after about seven years to find Arthrex, which is a medical device company, one of the global leaders in orthopedic surgery manufacturing and got into their medical education team and subsequently product development and now working back out in Arizona where I went to PA school, where my wife went to PA school as a sales manager. And that looks like sales. It looks like strategy. It looks like clinical education. So everything that I've done over the last 20 years has kind of come together in this current role with arthroplasty. We're looking at 95% shoulders, not a lot of knees and hips. So it's a lot of education with our representatives, our surgeons, and our hospital administrators, teaching them what we do and what we have that can help patients more so than what else is out there. Got it. And I just, for our listeners, how I come to know Tim, Tim recently gave a talk on proximal humerus fractures at our Phoenix meeting at the Ortho in the West, February the 23rd this year. And he talked about proximal humerus fractures and different types of treatments and surgeries. Tim's first slide was a picture of a comminuted proximal humerus fracture, and he readily admitted, you know, what do you do with this? He doesn't know the best treatment for that. And spent a good bit of time talking about how do you manage shoulder arthroplasty? There's not one right treatment for every person. There's, there's a lot that goes into it. And he went over pros and cons of surgical repair in detail. There were several different fixes he talked about. Tim, I was hoping you might elaborate on some of that information that you passed on to our attendees there about the different types of treatments for proximal humerus fractures and, you know, how can you kind of figure out what might the best option be? And I just wanted to, you, you did a great job of sharing your thoughts of that to our attendees there. And I was hoping you might share some of that with our listeners. Yeah, I started that talk off, Sam, saying, I don't know, because over 20 years, we've gone from certain treatments that we thought were home runs that didn't work out very well and things that didn't work out very well, we've come to revisit. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a moving target. In my experience, the first treatment option for anything we do is always do nothing, whether it's because that's what the patient wants or whether they're too sick to have surgery or whatever it may be. The first option is always do nothing, yet there are consequences to that as well. Uh, unfortunately, with, with proximal humerus fractures, there's no silver bullet, and it's definitely not cookbook. It's not like a meniscus where you say, oh, you have a meniscus tear, let's trim it out, and you'll be good to go or repair it. 
proximal humerus fractures come in all different shapes, sizes, and all different patients with different comorbidities and different expectations that they get from Dr. Google searches. Uh, so every treatment we provide, these patients have, have a different expectation that they're going to be like they were before their fracture. Again, each therapy has its pros and cons. If you look at simple things like percutaneous pinning, it is a quick surgery. We can get fractures lined back up, put a couple of pins in, and these are maybe for patients that can't undergo anesthesia for long periods of time or are great surgical candidates but need a fix. But we also know from the literature, percutaneous pinning does well in patients that are healthy with good healing potential. And those patients aren't the same patient, right? The sick patient with comorbidities that can't have long episodes of anesthesia aren't patients that are going to heal well. We look at intermedullary nailing, historically have not done well and have had you know, significant complications. And now that we've got next generation nails and, and newer techniques and understand the anatomy a little bit better, that's coming back into play a little bit. ORAF has been the standard of treatment for, for long periods of time. And we'll, you know, we can talk about things like avascular necrosis and, and healing potential. And there's some risk factors there that, that maybe patients will need a, a second surgery at some point. When we look at reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, you know, those patients seem to do really well, but it's an end-stage procedure. So maybe it's not your first procedure in the 50 to 60-year-old. For, for 70 to 80-year-olds, sure, it's, it's something to go to right away. But again, taking into account the patient that's, that's sitting in front of you, not always the best option. And hemiarthroplasty, you know, which was kind of a gold standard when, when I was early in my practice for fractures because reverse wasn't really out until uh, 2004, 2005. And hemiarthroplasty we thought did well, and we know that those patients uh, didn't do well in, in the long run. So it's a bit of a moving target, but whatever treatment you provide, including non-operative treatment, the, the best thing you can do is try to get your tuberosities lined up and get a good articulation. And you never know, things may work out well. And then you've got things that, to do if they don't. Tim, you, you just hit something that's kind of the next topic on our script, lining the tuberosities up well. Why is that such a critical component to long-term success of the implant, no matter what the implant is? Why is that so important? And you showed some slides on the vascular supply in relation to the fracture position. Can you tell us about that, about the alignment of the tuberosities and how vascular supply might be compromised and people develop AVN? Starting with the rotator cuff, again, starting from your sports world, we know that intact rotator cuffs, people can raise their arm above their heads and do things they want. It's the same with fractures. It's rotator cuff function is paramount to, to overall shoulder function and really patient habit. When you're dealing with simple two-part greater tuberosity fracture or even a four-part head split fracture, the tuberosities can be placed in a position to heal and you have a good articulation the chance of a good outcome increases significantly. You also mentioned avascular necrosis. We know that certain fracture patterns have a higher risk of AVN. And based on the literature, a fracture at the medial hinge that's close to the circumflex artery and, and other vasculature with more head displacement of that fracture is at higher risk for AVN. But the timing of that is unpredictable. We may do the best ORIF or non-operative treatment uh, even I am nailing, and then all of a sudden that head collapses three, six, 12 months later on down the line. These patients, if we can get the tuberosities to heal, no matter what treatment we do, if they end up with AVN, 
their functional outcome with reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is probably going to be better than if we just completely disregard them altogether. And you're talking about different kinds of fractures, and you discussed fracture classifications. Uh, I think you listed two or three different kinds. And, you know, I, I put a little bit in this, and, uh, you know, my doc likes to point out why I'm incorrect when I give him a classification of just about anything, three versus four part. Oh, no, there's a little wedge over there or something. So anyway, I just let him describe the classification. But it's an important thing. There's so many different fracture patterns. Tim spent a good bit of time going over this with some slides, different alignments, the tapsule hinge, the displacement, varus and valgus alignment. So whatever classification system that you use, make sure you know it very well. And Tim made a point of this to make sure you understand it, what your doc likes, and, and to go with that. What classification system is it that you use? So Sam, a lot of smart people have tried to develop simple classification systems to help define these fractures. CT scan is, is probably gold standard for evaluating these fractures this day and age. You can look at x-rays and get a pretty good idea, but CT scans with 3D reconstructions really let you see all the combination, all the parts of these fractures. You've got a really simple classification called the hurdle classification that uses four different colored Legos to, to define what these two, three, and four part fractures look like. It may be oversimplified, but it works well and something we all understand. Um, anytime you're talking fractures and, and trauma, you know AO is going to be involved and, and they have their definitions. And to this day and age, I still haven't found somebody that uses that classification, but it's out there. Finally, the near classification gets really specific and has really good pictures for defining these fractures. But figure out what your surgeons like uh, as far as using those classifications and know that cold. Uh, if you're in the ER seeing these patients, try to talk to the orthopedic surgeons to see what they like best with our surgeons and our agency representatives, we keep it simple. We define the number of parts and the names of the parts of the fracture, two, three, four part fractures, what tuberosities are fractured or surgical neck or head, whatever it may be. We describe the displacement and the angulation of the fracture. So the displacement, and the angulation, a lot of that's going to be due to the deforming forces, whether tuberosities are still intact in some places and not in others, or the pec major is a deforming force. Uh, we talk about valgus impacted heads or varus head positions and any other qualifying characteristics like locked posterior dislocation or head split fractures. We talk about where that fracture is in regards to the uh, vascular structures. You spoke about the medial hinge, whether there's a capsule spike that goes down into the diapsis. We know those are at less risk for AVN. We talk about the displacement at that hinge uh, being a risk factor for AVN. So the more you can do to give a really good description to your surgeons, that's going to help define what treatments are, are going to be appropriate. And again, I cannot express enough how important it is to document the neurovascular status of that entire upper extremity at the time of diagnosis of the fracture, as it will affect the treatment provided potentially, particularly the axillary nerve as well as keep you out of the courtroom if there is a deficit post-treatment that may be attributed to surgical intervention. Hey, was that nerve working before we went into operate? Yes, it was. Well, now it's not. So was that surgical misadventure or was something done in the operating room that caused that? Or was that there present before the operation took place? That's super important. Tim, I think you hit on a couple of very important things there with the classification. If you're not sure about the classification, I mean, do the best you can with it. But 
describing something anatomically specific and with objective details is way important when you're describing something to a surgeon. For our younger colleagues, make sure you get that. And also documenting neurovascular status with the proximal fracture. Make sure you check the radial nerve, check the pulses, you know, doing serial checks, not a bad idea. And the axillary nerve, you don't want to get in front of a legal situation. Trust me, you don't want to do that. Tim, thank you for being with us today. Sam, thank you again. Thank you for listening to the OrthoPAC podcast. Listeners, stay tuned next week for more on proximal humerus fractures and treatments of proximal humerus fractures. I hope to see you in Charlotte this May. We have our annual spring meeting, May the 5th and 6th. Please look at paos.org under CME.